Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, welcome back. Another episode of the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Glad you guys could join us. And I'm really excited about this podcast today. Larry Kristowiak, a former NBA player, former NBA coach. He's now the head coach of the University of Utah. One of the things I really like about Larry is that he played with some really interesting NBA players. Played with Malone and Stockton in Utah. Played with Shaq, both in Orlando and in uh, Los Angeles. And, of course, play with Michael Jordan for one year. That year that Jordan came back from playing baseball. So Larry's got great stories, beginning with an epic fight he had with Shaquille O'Neal. Things got really nasty and chippy, and we ended up in a big fight, uh, Shaq and I did. Everything kind of came to a head, and it was one of the dumbest decisions I ever made. Larry also tells me about he did the first interview with Michael Jordan when he came back to basketball. I looked under the the stall I could see his feet after his coffee uh, <laughs> see his feet under there so I did the first I actually did the first live interview with Michael before as this was probably 20 minutes before he went out and told the world that he was going to come back stick around for that and more it's the uh, Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix well before we get to Larry Kristowiak NBA veteran now the head coach at the University of Utah uh, I want to thank everybody for the support of this podcast you guys have been listening. The numbers have been great. Uh, if you can, if you think of it, go to iTunes, give us a rating, uh, you know, leave a comment. All that stuff helps the podcast grow every single week. So we can bring you podcasts just like this uh, with uh, Larry Kristowiak, the Utah head coach, 
former NBA veteran, and uh, Larry joins me here uh, on the show. Larry, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me on. So I was just looking through some of your numbers back in the early days in your playing career. Third year (laughs) in the NBA, you averaged about 12 points. If you hit free agency right after that, Larry, you're probably a $12 million per year player in today's NBA. (laughs) Well, timing is everything, you know? Um, It's interesting. It's interesting how that all works out. I had a couple of decent years, rookie and second year in the, uh, in the NBA. And then, you know, as a, as a smart franchise or business does the Milwaukee Bucks, um, they offered me a five-year deal, uh, which at the time seemed like an incredible amount of money. And, um, I, you know, I failed to realize talk about free agency, you know, it, it's, Hey, I want to, I want to hit the deal button on that five-year deal. And, mm-hmm. Uh, it, as I said, it was nice money, but, um, the smart ones probably don't sign those five-year deals. And then you can, you know, hopefully have a year, uh, or two where you're averaging double figures and let that contract, uh, come to an end and put yourself in free agency. But as a player and, and my agent, we were never smart enough to, to, uh, to gamble on that. We always kind of took the money when it was presented and, and we didn't we didn't clean up like a lot of guys are cleaning up nowadays. When you were growing up in uh, in Montana and playing college ball in Montana, was the NBA a dream for you? Well, it was. Uh, it's interesting. I th- you hit the word right on the head. It wasn't a goal. Uh, it was a dream, and we've talked about it around here in our program, our basketball program. That uh, there's a big difference between the two, and I was much more. Uh, short-term driven goals, maybe weekly, monthly, you know, how am I going to improve a little bit today even? And uh, often the distance was, uh, was this thing called the NBA. And I, I was aware that there weren't any NBA players ever from the state of Montana and, and how hard it was going to be. So I very much kept it a dream and, and tried to focus as much as I could on the daily work that, that it took to go into it. And, Obviously, real lucky to have a chance to to have played for ten years in the league. Yeah, was basketball? I mean, was it big in Montana where you grew up and 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 how you played? Well, I think you know. I think wintertime has a lot to do with it. When you look at some of the, you know, and I'm right here in the middle of Utah now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've got inclement weather in the in the winters, uh, you know, there's a lot of gravitation. I think toward basketball courts. The same thing happens in the Midwest. Um, you know, and it wasn't big. I was really lucky with a couple of coaches that I crossed paths with when I was a young kid, but I, and it was, it's probably more of a neighborhood, uh, you know, a good bounce of the neighborhood that I lived in. There were some older kids when I was six, seven and eight years old. I remember that we're on the high school varsity team, Charles M. Russell high school in great falls, mm. Montana, that were kind of my idols. And there was an outdoor court in the neighborhood and, you know, every, uh, every minute I could, I was on that court and oftentimes trying to track those older players down. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of what you're exposed to and, and who you want to be like and who you look up to. And I think I was, uh, probably a recipient of some of that good fortune more than anything else. Now in your career, you played with some great players. I mean, you were on some rosters with some unbelievable guys. You were on the jazz with Malone and Stockton, Shaq and Penny in Orlando, Jordan, uh, Kobe Bryant and Shaq in, in LA. 
I want to go through a couple of these situations with you, Larry. When you sure. when you got to Utah, that was right when I think Malone and Stockton were kind of hitting their stride. They were, you know, superstars pretty much. I, I think at, at that point, what, what was what was your impression of Carl Malone back then? You were probably going up against him in practice. What was he like um, as a competitor in practices behind the scenes? Well, Carl and I actually. Uh, we we spent some time together when we were back at college. We went on a U.S. team overseas. I believe the team was we went to Korea uh, and played. So I spent a few weeks with him. You know, probably a total of three weeks, practices included. So it wasn't like we uh, were complete strangers when we ended up being teammates. And I think the Jazz won. I think they won forty-one home games the year before. Uh, here in Salt Lake City, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, at the time the Delta Center was just opening, brand new. So it was a you know it was an exciting time. This they've got the they've got the attendance and the whole thing figured out here, and it's a big a big time event for our city. So it was really neat coming in and playing with, as you mentioned, I think arguably one of the best point guards that ever played the game. And I knew John from our college days too, because I went to Montana and mm-hmm. he was a Gonzaga guy. So. There were plenty of times we crossed paths during our college careers, which made it kind of nice. You know, it was a little of a familiar side to it, but Carl and I banged heads every day. And what I got to see was an incredible behind the scenes look at what makes, you know, two NBA greats tick. And it had a lot to do with focus and work ethic and being a pro. Um, And that's the correlation, I think, not just that I took from those two, but from all the other guys you mentioned, you know, it's not by chance that, uh, that those guys are, uh, as productive and Hall of Fame type guys as they are, it's a great deal to be said about how they approach the game, and I was able to see that firsthand. So it was uh, it was a heck of a good time here. Was he as? I mean, what was he like in practices? Was he intense there, or was it more of a was it more of a game type of thing? No, I think you know that's one of the common denominators you'll find with a lot of guys. They don't the special ones don't turn it on. You know, they don't just wait for the popcorn to start popping and and uh, people start showing up at the game and then go, okay, I'm going to start playing hard. I mean, whether it was Michael Jordan and Pippen and those guys in Chicago, sometimes the most competitive I ever saw these guys, Carl Malone's and Stockton's, were in practice. And uh, it's pretty neat when you can, you know, I know that our days in Chicago, Phil used to just let Scotty and Michael pick teams. It did, you didn't need to have a center to run the triangle. and. <laughs> Uh, they try to find the most competitive guys and you had those two guarding each other. They obviously knew each other better than anybody on the planet and uh, created a lot of sparks. And then all of a sudden you get into some game settings and you find out that they're actually easier than your practice. I think that's when you have a special team and, and those players that, uh, that are special knew that and, and would always push themselves to the limits. I was always blown away with Carl Malone a guy that would play 40 minutes a game and he was an absolute horse when it came to saddling him up and, and bringing the team to, you know, such great success. And then, and then you'd have off days in the NBA where you could, you know, guys that were playing a lot of minutes, obviously with the volume of games, didn't, didn't want to wear them out. And Carl was one of the only guys on those off days that would outwork me when it came to the weight room and getting some extra cardio in and he'd be on that stair stepper for an hour you know, with a big puddle of sweat underneath it. So um, it's unbelievable statement when it came to a work ethic from that guy. And you had a coach there in in Jerry Sloan who 
about as no nonsense a coach I would imagine as you can get. I mean, how did he and, and Carl kind of interact? Two guys probably from very different kind of walks of life. Well, you know what, Chris, I think different walks of life, but there probably couldn't have been two closer guys. Um, when it came to personality types, nonsense, no nonsense, uh, you know, not guys that necessarily had to hear themselves talk a lot. It was always about effort, you know, and that's what struck me with Jerry Sloan. I love the guy. We've, we've become quite close here uh, in Salt Lake. He and his wife and my, myself and my wife spend a lot of time together and uh, just one of the nicest guys on the planet, Coach Sloan. And, and he'd bring guys into the program, into the jazz, I think, that could kind of fit that blueprint. But I think uh, Jerry was so good for Carl and Carl was so good for Jerry. It's kind of a simple country minded one from Illinois. And I think Carl, Louisiana area, you know, and it didn't need a lot of fluff and polish. It was, it was more just about trying to outwork the other guy, not outthink the other guy. And, and I think that's what made that combination so special. Yeah. And the combination too, on the court with Malone and with John Stockton, two guys, that, that probably you could probably answer almost the same way, right? With the the competitiveness and the 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 you know the desire and the the work ethic that Stockton and Malone probably shared. But when you look back at the year that you spent, you know, around those two guys, I mean, what stands mm-hmm. out about what what made that dynamic so special? I just you know I just think it validated I, I guess my understanding of basketball. Um, that it, you know, it doesn't always have a high degree of difficulty, you know, maybe like an Olympic diving where you're trying to do things, do things fancy. Um, it was a winning style of basketball that was kept pretty simple. And, you know, John obviously was kind of the head of that snake and he understood, you know, when you talk about the, the Tom Brady's and the Matt Ryan's of the NFL guys that could make the first read and the second read and the third read and, and make the right play and just made everybody around him better. I think that was probably the thing when it came to, to the offensive side of the ball. And then when it came to defense, again, it Jerry used to always have a great saying, and, and I use it with our college team here at Utah now, and people want to get complicated about coverages and, you know, how you're going to do this and the X's and the O's. Um, uh, you know, if you ask Jerry how we were going to play pick and roll, oftentimes he would just say, guard your guy, guard, or me might add an expletive in there, <laughs> you know, guard, guard your effing guy or something. But it was, it was kind of the uh, opposite of all the data and the numbers and, and everything that we use now. And I think more than anything, when you can combine uh, a scouting report and some of that X's and O's with the mentality that we had here at Utah that's when you could have special teams. And I think that's what ended up happening in the years they were, you know, making runs at conference finals championships. How often did Jerry Sloan consult those scouting reports? Well, like I said, you know, Jerry was pretty simple minded. (laughs) It was, uh, and that's what I loved about him. Uh, You know, I played for Dell Harris for five years and, and Dell was probably the most, elaborate and, and uh, extensive guy that I've ever been around when it came to data and numbers and how to do things. And so if you can have one of those, you know, movie experiences where you can crack two personalities together, mm. um, combine the two. And, and that, that's what I've learned, you know, is it's, it takes a combination of both. You better have, you better have your brain locked in uh, to how to guard things, but you better bring your heart and, 
And uh, when you can do that, it becomes pretty dangerous. You know, one of the underrated, or maybe not underrated, but underappreciated aspects of John Stockton's game was he was a hell of a screener, Larry. I mean, some of the picks he set underneath. I mean, I don't know how he got up from some of them. And this was back in the day when you were kind of allowed to be real physical uh, with guys in the paint. Did did he ever set one of those screens on you in practice? And, And what did you, what would be your evaluation of John Stockton, the screen setter? Well, I've always gotten a kick out of it. I think people want to talk about how John was cheap and dirty and and this and that. That was never the case. You know, you'd be hard pressed to find an illegal, you know, a screen that he was trying to hurt anybody. What John understood was the sense of urgency that was needed to set a screen. You have to get there fast, uh, which he always did. And he knew where to kind of target the guy. John wasn't a guy that was going to come up and make contact with you and knock you off your spot. John was going to put himself in a position where he was low and on balance and his pad level was down kind of under a lot of the big guys and you would run into him, but it was never a malicious kind of elbow forearm deal. Uh, You know, somebody at some point taught John how to set a screen, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, which is really unique when you've got a point guard. Uh, and so you always felt kind of the same sense of responsibility to return the same favor to him. And, you know, he, he probably taught me how to set screens when it came to, to getting over, put your body in the right spot and actually set a screen with the purpose of, you know, why it was first initiated in the game, which was to get your teammate open. I think, uh, that's kind of a lost art. So you're, you're right on point with that. That's such a good point. I think that's an example of the fundamentally sound, you know, mentality that John Stockton played with, just one of the little, what you'd call a little thing that really there are no little things in basketball. Now, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, Larry, but I I can't imagine in today's NBA that, say, a Steve Kerr would ever risk a Steph Curry setting screens like that, or Billy Donovan would ever risk Russell Westbrook setting the type of in-the-paint screens to, to free up a post player in the way that Stockton did, almost because it's it's just too big a risk of injury, I would think, at this point. Yeah, I mean, in 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 one sense, I'd have to say, well, you're wrong, but it's only because of the way the game has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the day of the big guy, you know, those screens that John was setting people were because you're trying to get big guys down to a position, you know, in the post. And uh, as I'm watching at least college basketball, I'm not sure that the rules aren't being implemented and changed to almost get rid of the big man. I mean, we've got these crazy calls in college now um, dealing with this cylinder. So the good old days where you go down and you post and you put your arms out and spread out wide and you try to earn a catch at the post, I'm finding half the times as an offensive foul now. Mm. And so, you know, you've added the three point line, uh, the threes add up a heck of a lot. Everybody's playing small ball. So, I would think overall, Chris, the number of screens, with the exception of pick and roll, which is crazy, those are off the charts, the number of pick and roll screens you set. But the the good old box set screen, the screener type plays power basketball, I think is a thing of the past. So it's probably probably a good time for Steph Curry to be playing the game where he's not being asked to, to do some of that dirty stuff. So um, it's a really cool concept. It's a good question. Do you think the game, Larry, has changed because the, the talent level has kind of gravitated towards guards? I mean, look, we, we're we probably in a, a NBA point guard renaissance where it seems like two-thirds, if not more, of the uh, teams in the league have 
you know, all NBA caliber sort of point guard. Do you think the way the game has evolved is because of that or, you know, just uh, something, maybe just the Mike D'Antonification of the NBA? Well, I, you know, I think, uh, I think there's always going to be great point guards myself. Um, you've got a volume of guys that are obviously the, by data, just by sheer numbers, you've got far more six foot one guys than you do seven foot guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a little sampling size to, I, I think around, and then you got the Steph Curry's and some of the smaller, even when it started with Iverson, it kind of gives everybody hope that you can with quickness and skill, you can play in the NBA. Um, I just, I just find, you know, it's, it's play away basketball. Now it's four guys that are spread. And I think it's some of it's a little copycatish. Um, you know, back in the days when I was playing, it was, you know, the bad boys were winning, uh, championships. The bulls were winning championships. I think everybody felt they needed a couple of bad boys on their team. I mean, that might've been why I had a job was just kind of the hockey style power forward that could be physical. Yeah. And so now if you look at the blueprint of who's winning championships, the floor is spread. Uh, Cleveland doesn't have a back to the basket guy. Um, you know, I think that was an exposed the warriors a year ago when they lost Bogut. I don't think people realize how valuable he was down there to, to limit some of those points in the paint. But I just think from an offensive point of view, big guys aren't being utilized. You know, you, it's, it's hard pressed. You got the Duncan, obviously Kareem, those guys, but, um, the game's changing, you know, the game is changing and, and I don't see it. We used to, in college have two twin towers and you, you know, you do whatever you could to throw the ball into the post and you, you, you'd do anything to get the old fashioned three point play and maybe put teams in foul trouble. And, uh, and now that's such a thing of the past, you know, it's so much easier to design, uh, open space settings and keep the floor spread. And, you know, as we all know, the three pointer nowadays is a heck of a lot easier than trying to manufacture one from the good old days. So I think, I think it's just a, a sign of our times and the, and the game of basketball is, uh, completely evolved from where, it, where it originally started. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Kareem and it's always eluded me why the sky hook basically died with him. The, the best score in NBA history his number one weapon, and it's basically extinct at this point. I, I've I've looked around. Yeah. There's not a single player in the NBA. I don't know if you see a single player in college basketball who's utilized that e- even on a smaller scale to what Kareem does. Yeah, it's funny you brought that up. When we had Jakob Pertle here, our big Austrian, for a couple of years, uh, we worked a lot on that between his freshman and sophomore year before we lost him to the NBA, and he would sling one of those up there every game. Uh, with his length and his athleticism. And I think that the missing point that I don't know if anybody realizes that was so special for Kareem, and I know Kareem would be sure to tell you, just ask, just ask him how he got going in most of those games. It was a guy by the name of Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the ability, the fine art, it's not just that we don't have as many big guys to throw it to or we're not utilizing them, but the art of a post feed might be one of the biggest dinosaurs that we have the ability to get it to a big guy on time and on target. And certainly in the days of the Lakers, it was probably the first time five times down the floor, you know, magic knew where his bread was buttered and our team is going to win when we can establish the post and get cream going. And I just don't think that's the way, uh, 
a lot of coaches are thinking right now, not to mention you don't have the Magic Johnsons to play with. How tough was that shot, though, to defend, Larry? I mean, it, you couldn't, right? <laughs> I mean, you just couldn't. No, you couldn't. The only, the only, uh, the only way you were going to defend that shot was figure out a way to keep the ball from going there, which was, <laughs> which was really hard. But it involved trying to front the post, and it took multiple guys to make sure that he wasn't getting that feed because, you know, and as you know, when you've got the weapons around – Kareem as they did there really isn't anybody you can come off of to double team him um so that's you know some some teams might have a, a little chink in their armor when it came to somebody if Kareem gets it we're going to come and double team him and get, and get to that spot so he can't sling his hook but the minute you do that obviously Kareem would make the appropriate pass and then they'd be hurting you in another way so um you know a lot of that a lot of the dynamic let's not forget it's not just about Kareem but it's the team that he was able to play with and and the players that allowed him to play the way he did too. I mentioned you had some incredible experiences at the end of your career. Uh, Orlando was your next stop after Utah, and that was was that the first year of Shaq or the second year of him down there? Penny that Hardaway, was the second year of Shaq, and and Penny Hardaway's rookie year. Yep. What was yep. I mean? What did you I mean? Being around Shaq like that, at, and he was kind of I mean not a novelty, but I don't think we'd ever seen. You know, not since the days of of Wilt and maybe Daryl Dawkins, and just a rare type of overwhelmingly powerful player. You went up against some some powerful guys in your career. How did he compare at that stage when you were with him? No, he was he was the obstacle. He was he was the immovable. Uh, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable. And I felt so blessed to have a chance to go. Here I am, kind of tapering off my career. You know, and to be able to come to Utah for a year and Chicago for a year and Orlando for a year, I basically hit the an opportunity to be teammates with the dream team, you know, <laughs> when you when you include all those guys. So uh I got to be pretty darn close with Shaq. It was really neat. I uh I felt part of my job description at my time in Orlando was to was to maybe help teach him how to be a pro a little bit, like some of the veterans taught me when I was coming into the league. And, uh, so I tried to share a little bit of, uh, you know, whatever you can, whether it's practice habits or different things, there was a lot of distractions for that young man. And, um, and so, you know, some, some things that get a little complicated and I was there for him and we still, uh, you know, a great deal of respect that it's just one of the bright spots for me, knowing that I had a chance to play with him and we, you know, teamed up with him a little bit and then found ourselves on the floor quite a bit. So it was quite an experience what were some of the things that you did try to kind of impart on him you mentioned some of the stuff he was you know whether it's the off the court stuff or or uh you know just whatever he was else he was into what what kind of stuff did you try to teach him and, and impart on him well it, you know i wasn't the best teacher when it came to trying to get a guy to to uh simplify you know and and some of the distractions um you know, I can remember we were in LA. Uh, it wasn't exactly a teaching moment. It was more of me losing my marbles at the same time, but <laughs> we were in LA and we had to play the Clippers and the Lakers, um, in back to back games. And I, you know, uh, he, I, I needed my sleep, put it that way. I wasn't a guy that was out late in the club scene and all that, but we had lost one of those two games. I think we lost to the Clippers. And, um, you know, Shaq was in the spotlight with a lot of the movie stars and late night, different things. And I knew that they'd been up burning the, 
midnight oil. And I just felt like it was, if, you know, you, you feel free to, to party hard, but you got to be able to play hard. And, uh, the particular game I'm talking about, Shaq didn't play hard and we had, uh, you know, disappointing loss. We had a little team meeting. I remember our coaches kind of divided teams. We practiced, it was in the forum, uh, before we played the Lakers and things got really nasty and chippy and we ended up in a big fight. Uh, Shaq and I did. Scott Skiles kind of initiated it. And if you two are going to keep screaming at each other, why don't you just fight? Uh, everything kind of came to a head and that it was one of the dumbest decisions I ever made, but we <laughs> ended up throwing a bunch of punches and up in the stands and, um, you know, quite an emotional deal. My whole point and teaching point to it was, was that we needed him. You know, you got an old timer that's kind of riding his uh, coattails and wanting him to be a pro and, and to simplify some of the off the court stuff. And I think a lot of respect was, was garnered individually from that. I mean, we were trying to stand up for what was right and, and we've talked about it since. And he did think that that was one of those teaching moments that you gotta, you gotta bring it, you know, and, and uh, a lot of people were tugging on him, music and making movies and all this. And I just, it's a reminder that he's a professional basketball player and he needed to have uh, a complete focus with, with the magic at that time to give us a fair chance to be successful. What did you realize in that altercation that you might've bitten off more than you could chew? No, it was, you know, the minute we're approaching each other, getting ready to start throwing <laughs> punches. Uh, and I just remember after the dust kind of cleared, I looked up and Skiles was up on Shaq's back. Like one of those, uh, like one of those little monkeys that was, you know, <laughs> Uh, just flipping around and trying to hold on for dear life. And I'll, Scott and I are pretty close. We have been over the years. And that's like, you know, way to go. You started, to, if you guys, if you two sissies are just going to keep yelling at each other, why don't you just fight? And it was like, I, I knew right then that that was a bad idea. So your next season, if it could even get uh, more crazy, was in Chicago. And that was the year, right, that Jordan came back late in the season, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, yep. I mean, just describe for me what that what that was like. I mean, when when you kind of first heard Michael was coming back and, and what that whole experience was like, because that was crazy at the time. Well, I had a really inside look on that one. I uh, had an emergency appendectomy. Um, and so I wasn't on the travel squad and I was working out at the Berto Center where we practiced out in Deerfield and was getting my daily workouts in. And then lo and behold, who starts showing up? Um, and it's, you know, MJ for about a week. And so we're hooking up at the same time, doing workouts together and putting each other through some stuff. And I remember we were shooting free throws at the end of it one day. And I started getting the sense that he might be coming back. And, um, it, it was neat. I mean, he, I remember him saying, Hey, Larry, what do you think about, uh, me changing my number to 45. What do you, how do you think, what kind of impact would that have? And I thought for a few minutes and I said, you know, I, as we're shooting free throws, I probably thought for a couple of rounds and I said, I think, you know, what a tremendous idea. I said, you got everybody in the world right now that already owns your 23. And if you change it to 45, you're going to make everybody have to run out and buy a number 45 Jersey. And, uh, so I kind of got the behind the scenes, um, view of that one. And I actually, the day that was one of the craziest scenes I've ever seen with all the media showing up at the Birdo center to have his announcement that he was coming back. So I brought my camcorder 
and I was kind of filming all of the the festivities and I was in the bathroom. I've still got it on my little eight millimeter disc. It might be kind of a valuable uh, piece of media, but I <laughs> looked under the, the stall. I could see his feet uh, in the morning after his coffee, uh, <laughs> see his feet under there. So I did the first, I actually did the first live interview with Michael before as this was probably 20 minutes before he went out and told the world that he was going to come back. And I remember saying, Hey, Michael, uh, this is Larry Christoviak from whatever. I made up some, you know, WTMJ. Uh, is there any truth to the rumor that you're coming back to, to join the Chicago bulls? And we did this pretty cool three or four question interview behind the, the crapper wall in the, in the Berto <laughs> shower room. So, um, I, I got to break that out. Oh, you really have to take that. that out. You really have to find <laughs> that Larry. <laughs> that's phenomenal uh, he wasn't he wasn't old michael that year was he i mean he, he just no. he wanted to be look like if my memory serves but he, uh, even a guy as great as him couldn't just flip a switch could he no no and that was it and i i've become great friends with the steve kerrs and the bushlers and the guys that were around you know longley and wennington and those guys that played with michael when he was leading them uh, and there was just a little something missing, you know, and it's, I, I don't know if karma's involved where you, you're going to take off and go play baseball and then come back and expect to be a champion. You know, I just think there was so much heat, uh, Orlando, we caught Orlando and had game one, one at their place in the semifinals. And he had a late turnover in that game. And then we, you know, we kind of lost our momentum, but he was just, a lot of those teammates said he was just a little too hard on everybody else, um, hard on himself. You know, it was a disruptive. And then there I was in the middle of the kick the field goal between the two three-peats. And then after I left, they went and won three in a row. So it was just that little glitch, you know, on the on the radar screen from, from disappearing for baseball. But it was obviously one of the, the greatest stories of all time, what he was able to do. And as a coach now, you you had the the benefit of playing for some some all time great coaches, headlined of course by Phil Jackson, arguably the greatest coach of all time. Jerry Sloan, certainly in the top five of that list. Is there something that you you took from either one of them that you try to use right now? I well, for sure. I I was just talking about this the other day. I think we're all kind of. Uh, you know, we're all victims of our experiences, not victims, but you're a result of a lot of your experiences and whoever you're around. And, and there's a lot of positive and negative learning that takes place in life. You know, if you have a bunch of positive people and successful people, then as you're making your little personal file cabinet of things that you would do and wouldn't do and implement, um, then you kind of become a result of that. If you've got a bunch of dysfunction and you work for bad bosses and not very good leaders, I think you learn how not to do things. And I just feel really lucky that, you know, that a lot of the people I was looking up to and fortunate enough to work with and work for were super successful people. And, um, so, I mean, when it comes to Phil, it was just uh, the temperament, I think a little bit of a chill, um, majority of the time it was just staying kind of in a calm situation but probably the biggest thing with phil was was accountability whether you were michael jordan or larry christoviak and you were in the film room 
watching games, it didn't matter. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't putting kid gloves on with certain guys and treating people, but the standard was the same. Uh, he stayed really true to that. I think that's a valuable point. And then we've kind of talked about it already with Jerry Sloan, just the no nonsense. How valuable is it just to go out and put an honest day's work in? You know, those were two of the things uh, that I learned from both of those guys. It was phenomenal combination to to be around those two and the number of games they won between them. Um, you know, it's, uh, as I said before, it was quite an honor and a blessing to have a chance to, to be around them. What sense did you get in that year in Chicago about how Scotty Pippen felt about getting Michael back? It had been kind of a, you know, uneven stretch for him up until that point. Some, some controversial stuff prior to that as well. I mean, do you, what do you remember about, you know, Pippen, you know, effectively getting his, his running buddy back there? Yeah, well, what I remember about it, and I've I've attempted to defend Scotty every turn of the way since then. I'm not sure I ever had a better teammate. Um, Scotty, Scotty got it, you know, and I know there were a couple of emotional times that he was considered selfish and the game plays and you know want you know this and that and sitting down and I mean it's it's a grind. Uh, it's a grind, the old NBA, and there was a lot of pressure on Scotty, but you know, he was one of the best teammates I had. There's not anybody that was more excited about having Michael back. There was not anybody, anybody on the planet that was more interested in winning than Scotty was. So, um, you know, the opportunity to be around those two when they had it going he, and then Ron Harper, those three would join hands out front. You could barely get the ball across half court. Um, mm. So I have nothing but fond, fond memories of Scotty and, and how he handled himself. And I think as is the case, you know, you make a couple bad decisions and, and unfortunately some people remember that, but people need to understand uh, what a winner he was. And the Bulls never, ever would have been able to do it with just Michael and that cast it. Scotty was a big, big part in it. And you caught Shaq at the end too, back in LA. Um, I think his second year in LA, Kobe's first or... Or something like that. Yeah, exactly and right. What was Shaq a different guy then? What, what did you notice differently about him? Well, yeah, I mean, he was he was uh, he was kind of a cagey old veteran, you know, not not quite as exuberant with everything, and he just mellowed. And I think he probably did get more focused, uh, you know, on the job at job at hand. Uh, you know, just what you'd expect when you're looking at somebody that's probably 20 years old versus. Oh, I don't know what it would have been. How many years later, 19, 20 years old versus a 26 year old, how, how much of us all mature, um, you know, and I can remember sitting on the bench. There were, there were some stat sheets. I think I kept a couple of them from my two stints there with the Lakers where there were only two players that didn't make it on the floor that got the proverbial DNPCD, mm. you know, that did not play coach's decision. Uh, and it was me and Kobe and Kobe was, uh, <laughs> a lot of people don't remember that Kobe didn't have it all figured out his first year, you know, and sat, sat the bench an awful lot. And it's a pretty good uh, lesson. I think the young players at all levels that are taking the step to the next level, that it's, it doesn't just happen overnight. You know, it's a process and you kind of have to trust that process and, and stay working. So it was, uh, it was fun. It was fun being a part of it. You could go to the well with some of these stories, Larry, so many times with, with young kids, perhaps, like you have at, at Utah. I mean, how often do you, 
you know, site NBA type experiences, something you saw from Malone or Stockton or Jordan or Pippen or Shaq. I mean, how often do you uh, try to impart these types of uh, real life lessons? Because I would think that, you know, kids would be somewhat receptive to, to these types of stories. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, Chris, I think, I think actually I've realized that there's more validity to it now. Uh, and it's not, it's always a fine line. You know, I've, I've tried to remain extremely humble and, and not, I've always joked with people when they start breaking out their scrapbook, you know, like, Hey, everybody's got a scrapbook. Mm. Um, and it's fun to talk about, but it's also very important that, that they know I'm a teacher and that I'm, you know, so now if I do use some of those stories, it's less about tooting my own horn, uh, and making sure that they understand I'm not just, it's not like, you know, bragging or anything like that, but it's like you mentioned, just bringing a correlation to a story to validate what it is that we're trying to teach, I think is important. And sometimes it does need a little shock value or a little wow factor to it. Like what you, you mean he did that? You know, and so if if Carl Malone or if so and so, you know, Michael Jordan did that, that wouldn't it make pretty good sense that that would be okay for you to implement as well? So as as I've gotten older, I'm probably a little bit freer with some of those stories, but I certainly, um, you know, I don't know how many of our players know much about my past, to be honest with you, or mm-hmm. that I even played, or some of the names. <laughs> of the guys I played with. It's just more, I think of a focus on trying to, to be a coach and control what we're doing here and, and get our team firing on all cylinders and try to be as good as we can be. I just think you're some tall guy from Montana. Yeah. 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 Some balding (laughs) chubby. (laughs) You have, you have you found, I mean, you were, uh, you know, I got to know you when you were coaching uh, in Milwaukee and, and, and some of the assistant coaching spots you have now that you're, in the college ranks. I mean, is it a big difference in, in how you coach guys? I mean, I would imagine teaching is a bigger part of it, but, you know, compare and contrast how you would coach, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds between how you coach grown men in the NBA. Well, that's always the, that's always the dilemma you're in. You know, it's, uh, it, I think young kids in college, oftentimes they do need to be taught, you know, there's they're not always the best. Uh, they're lucky if they have a good high school coach, um, AAU coaching with things in, in place. But, you know, when you jump to the college level, it's a whole different uh, price of poker. And, uh, and there's a lot to learn. And a lot of times um, it's your duty as a college coach to teach it to them. I typically, um, you know, when you're at the pro level, those guys are at the pro level for a reason. They've been on certain college teams, most of them, um, or coming from Europe. And it's, it's more about terminology, um, you know, and getting everybody clicking on all the same cylinders in an NBA team. But it, it's so much more of a program building mentality, I think, at college where you've got to you know, I used to joke when I was at the NBA, it'd be nice to have some control over the players you coach. And then, and then boom, you're a college coach. And then it's the old adage, you better be careful what you wish for, because now you are in control of who you coach and you got to go recruit them and put them together on the court. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. And then I, you know, one of the things I like best and get the biggest kick out of uh, and feel a sense of value at the college level is, 
is an opportunity to maybe be a mentor uh, or a difference maker. In some cases, a family, you know, father-like figure at times for these young kids and, and kind of the family bond that you can build by the time you're done with them on senior night. And I think that's really lacking at the NBA level. You know, most players, by the time they've got to the NBA, um, have already had a pretty significant mentor or somebody difference maker, um, you know, that's, that's had that impact. So it's really hard to kind of crack that shell and, and get as close as you might in college with, with some of the players you coach, unless you're, you know, maybe a Popovich and Duncan, those special kind of situations, but they're certainly rare, I think, in the NBA game as opposed to the opportunity to, to get those relationships going in college. Is recruiting a good part of college coaching or a, a kind of a drag of college coaching? Well, I don't think that there's, you know, any college coach on the planet that would say they love recruiting, mm. um, but it's also the lifeblood of a program. You know, it's uh, you, you need to establish a skill at it and the communication method and what's your niche going to be. And uh, you better learn to like it, you know, and, and um, it's, uh, it's huge, but it's, you know, it's a lot of hours. It's uh, it can get complicated and, um, you know, no two stories are the same. It's, it seems like it's always, it's always got some interesting twists and turns and, and, um, but again, it's, it's super important. So, we we put an awful lot of time into it. There's no doubt. I I, th- I have a suggestion for you, Larry. I think you should change the uh, voicemail in your office line. So if somebody, if a recruit gets your voicemail, you say, "This is Larry Kristowiak with uh, Utah. Uh, I'm not in right now. I'm probably talking to Carl Malone, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, uh, Penny Hardaway, <laughs> Kobe Bryant, or any of the other number of teammates. I'm, or checking in with Phil Jackson and Jerry Sloan. But I'll get back yeah. to you right after this." Yeah, leave a message. Yeah, very good. <laughs> I love oh. it. Hey, Larry, I know you're busy these days. I really appreciate taking this time to join the podcast. Great stories. Uh, you had some great experiences. Thanks for taking uh, a few minutes to do this. You got it, Chris. Thank you, buddy. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Larry Kristowiak for joining the show. A reminder, you can listen to archive podcasts at iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, really anywhere you can download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. Whoa. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.